The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I'm delighted to bring to you today Andriana Natsoulis. She is an activist, an advocate, and an author of a terrific new book titled Food Voices, Stories from the People Who Feed Us. She has had an extensive work history in movements that protect food and water. She's worked for Food and Water Watch. She's worked for Greenpeace. She worked as an independent consultant. She has worked for the Northwest Atlantic Marine Alliance. She has worked for Public Citizen, the Marine Fish Conservation Network, and the Worldwide Fund for Nature. She's been all over the world looking at how the food system works or doesn't work to provide truly a socially and environmentally just food system. So welcome, Andriana. It is my pleasure to have you. Thank you very much, Melinda. I'm so happy to be here. Your book is a compilation of stories, and I think the overarching theme is food sovereignty. And we're going to get into that. But first I want to know what led you to collect the voices of different farmers and fishermen and bring them in a collected volume to the rest of us. I've been working on food issues, agricultural policy, fisheries policy for quite a number of years. And I've been really amazed over the years how the interest in local foods, how the interest in food policy has been growing and growing and growing. And you have more people from more backgrounds, from different perspectives getting involved with the local food movement. And I was at a food policy conference in 2009, and I'm sitting in this big conference room looking around at all the people there to talk about food policy. And there were a lot of government representatives, there were advocates, there were representatives of nonprofit organizations, and there was, I think, one table of farmers, there was a fisherman's wife who was actually there with me as I was representing a nonprofit organization, and there were a couple farm workers. And I just thought something is wrong. We are talking about the very essence of these people's lives from the moment they wake up to the moment they go to sleep, and they are not here to participate. So I decided that I was going to collect their voices give them a venue to be heard if they aren't able to fly around the world to go to these conferences. Well, you have done an excellent job in bringing us their voices. And I have to say that the book really, as I mentioned, it is under this umbrella of food sovereignty. So before we go mm-hmm. any farther, I sense, and maybe you do too, but I sense that there isn't a really good understanding of what food sovereignty is. So can you describe that for us? Well, food sovereignty is a concept, is a term, is a framework that has really been accepted, embraced around the world. And it is 
a phrase that was coined by the international peasants movement called La Via Campesina in 1996 in response to the um, World Food Summit. Now, it's a phrase, a concept, an idea that has not yet entered into, I could say, mainstream of the local food movement in the United States, but it's an idea that I find to be so relevant because, first of all, it's an international movement, so it's offering solidarity with people around the world in villages in Mali to urban gardeners in Caracas, Venezuela, and it's really an opportunity to join this international global movement towards food sovereignty, and it's a framework. It isn't a prescribed recipe. You do this first, you do this second, you do this third. Um, you have to follow these guidelines. It's, it's a framework which is adjusted, is tweaked depending on the needs of the community. And there's seven principles of food sovereignty that was first developed in 1996 as the framework, which I could go through briefly. Yes, let's do, because I think, and I should let our listeners know that in the back of your beautiful book, you have both the Via Campesina's Seven Principles of Food Sovereignty, and you also have the Nialini Six Pillars of Food Sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. clearly, I mean, they're mirrors of each other, but just a little bit different. So let's mm-hmm. just give our audience a basic understanding of what is included. When we talk about food sovereignty, what are we meaning Well, there are these original seven principles, which include food being a basic human right. Everybody must have access to safe, nutritious food. Agrarian reform talks about the ownership of land or resources and ensures that women, indigenous people, have equal access to land and resources. Protecting natural resources is a third principle, and that includes ideas of sustainability and biodynamic farming and what we would call in the fisheries world portfolio fishing. The fourth one principle is reorganizing food trade so that food is first nutrition for the people, for our community, and then it can be used as trade, not the other way around, which is unfortunately how it too often is these days. Mm-hmm. The fifth principle is ending the globalization of hunger. So it goes along the idea, give a man a fish, he eats for a day, teach a man to fish, he eats forever. And it's really helping provide the resources for people to be able to end hunger rather than just give food aid, which is a temporary band-aid. Social peace is another principle, the sixth principle of food sovereignty, and talks about people being free, you know, being able to live a life free from violence and not to use food as a weapon, which, again, is too often used both here in this country and around the world. And then the last one is democratic control. So small-scale farmers, fishermen should have direct input in formulating the policies that will affect them directly. And that is a principle that I mentioned earlier about why I wanted to go out and collect the voices because they needed to be part of these conversations around food policy. Now, Melinda, you mentioned that uh, right after in my book, in the back of the book in the appendices, right after the seven principles of food sovereignty, there are the six pillars of food sovereignty that were developed during an international conference that took place in the countryside of Mali 
2007. There's six pillars there which really reflect in different words those seven principles that I just described. And then when I was pulling together Food Voices and I'm looking at all these interviews and pulling out themes, essentially those themes were the same things as in the seven principles of food sovereignty, were the same things that were discussed at Nyanlani, the six pillars of food sovereignty. And it's the same issues over and over again that I hear, and that again is why I think food sovereignty is the way to move forward to develop a new food system because it's based on these basic ideas that every community faces and then you're able to shift them and define them depending on your community and your community's needs. Mm -hmm. I wondered how you had taken all of these interviews and come to the conclusion that this was going to be how you organize them because that's always a challenge when you have a lot of information, right? Oh, yes. And I also, in the book, Food Voices, there are only 30 people profiled, I interviewed nearly 80. I figured. And so it was really heart-wrenching to make that decision of, oh, my God, I'm going to have to cut this person, I'm going to have to cut that person, but I really don't want to. But the way I originally approached it was putting people in regions. Yeah. So this person is from Ecuador. This person is from the western United States. And I was looking... And I would actually tell you that this is what I spent the most amount of time on, aside from gathering the stories. I just kept looking at them in their different regions mm-hmm. and far away from the the farmer in, in Maine is so far away from that farmer in Brazil, and they shouldn't be. And so I kept looking at that organization and just realized, no, they can't be split up by region. They have to be split up by what their emphasis was, what their theme was. Yeah. Well, I think you did a terrific job. And under those six pillars, I just want to go through them to reinforce those seven mm-hmm. principles. So we're going to focus on food for people. And as mm-hmm. a dietitian, I cannot share your values enough to emphasize the idea that food is a right, a good food, so that people can reach their full potential. And then valuing food providers, which I think there's a trend towards that because of the local food system, although I just uh, was in a, a webinar that looked at individuals that are working in some of these horrific industrial food plants mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. the rights of the workers are not known. They're kept mm-hmm. very privatized. So that absolutely speaks to me. It's not just the farmer that we know at the market. Mm-hmm. It's also who's behind the scenes here. Localizing food systems. Boy, do we ever need that with regard to resiliency. Putting control locally. There's that democratic m- message. Building knowledge and skills and working with nature. Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. Rather mm-hmm. than this message, I don't know if you look through farm magazines at all, but there's a, an underlying theme that I see. These are, of course, published largely by the agribusiness mm-hmm. companies where, you know, it's man dominating nature, where the mm-hmm. people in your book work with mm-hmm. nature and very successfully. So mm-hmm. I want to move to the forward of your book. You have a forward written by George Naylor, who I've interviewed. He's a farmer in Iowa, and he says something that I think bears repeating multiple times. 
He says, according to free market economists, consumers want only one thing: everything cheaper and convenient. And then he says, consumers are victims too. And if we do nothing else during this interview, I want to blow this whole free market way of thinking out of the water. So mm-hmm. let's dive into some of the people that you interviewed. And well, what, mm-hmm. what, do you have any comment just about that? When you're talking about, you know, valuing the food providers and working with nature, and what George talked about in the forward, I think I go immediately to John Kinsman, who <sighs> was a longtime activist, a dairy farmer from Wisconsin, who unfortunately passed this past spring, and John. I've never met anybody like John, you know, in his 90s and he will he will travel, he will he will go, he will talk, he will walk, you know, he'll talk the talk, he'll walk the walk. He was a great advocate for small farmers and for food sovereignty. And he was involved with the whole food sovereignty movement from the very beginning. But a couple things that he said was in in terms of Bringing up the next generation of family farmers, how is that possible when these children of farmers are being told by their peers, by the media, that their parents are stupid because they are selling a product without being able to make a lot of money based on those sales? And these kids are hearing it and they start feeling, you know, have a negative reaction to their parents. They have a negative feeling about themselves. And this is something that John really wanted to overcome was this idea that, you know, these are poor farmers, they're just stupid, they don't realize that they're working so hard and not getting paid because our country, the society in general, more and more global society in general, is becoming so focused on money, on the economics rather than on the values. And that was one issue that John really felt was important to address and important to overcome. And he does talk about that. He's the very last interview in my book. Mm -hmm. And he also talks about these magazines. Right. These agriculture magazines that farmers receive for free in the mail. And, yes, it's the agribusinesses who are giving those magazines out and they are selling their ideas to so many of the remaining farmers and John felt that it was really important to be able to give other information to these farmers and not let the agribusiness dominate everything, dominate the seeds, dominate the soil, dominate the plant and dominate the mind. Mm-hmm. That's a really good way of pointing that out. We've got to take one break because I need to remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Andriana Natsoulis. She is an activist, advocate, and author of a terrific new book titled Food Voices, Stories from the People Who Feed Us. And it's interesting. I wondered if you had put John Kinsman's interview at the end by design, but I underlined as well the biggest problem is the negative public relations that's done by the corporations and how these magazines, these, you know, and I, I like to put the word free in quotations. They mm-hmm. are by design feeding the mind and feeding the mindset and how we think about how we farm and how we must farm under this silly notion that, that somehow American farmers are going to feed the world. We're not. Mm-hmm. And uh, your book, 
then goes on to explore some of the challenges and successes that farmers all over the world are facing. Andriana, I was very interested in particular with your attention to fisheries. And I wonder if we can maybe jump to some of the fishermen that you interviewed and talk a little bit about some of the challenges that all of us who love to eat fish need to know in order to be better food citizens. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, fisheries and fish have really been left on the left and left field in this whole food, local food movement. And I find it really interesting because people have an idea of what they can do to eat local, to eat healthy, to eat well in terms of land-based foods. But then when you get into fish, and I primarily am talking about marine rather than freshwater, People don't know how to address it, and I've always said, well, go with the same approach. Know your farmer. Know your fisherman. It's the same idea of eating locally. Get to know where your food is coming from. Go, if you can, to the farmer's market if your community is on, you know, is on the water and get your seafood there straight from the fishermen. There are a lot of rules and regulations that prevent some of the direct sales of fish, but there have been more and more community-supported fisheries popping up around the country. There are more and more fishermen at farmer's markets, and it's still the small-scale fishermen who values their livelihood, who values the natural resources, who values the ocean, who values their community. And it's the same approach as with land-based foods. And there are so many of these little guides that are really easy to take a look at. You know, red is don't eat that fish. Yellow is, well, proceed with caution. Green is, yeah, go ahead, full steam. Well, really, what is it like to be in Missouri and eat salmon from Alaska, this wonderful wild-caught salmon, there's still all the other issues that people look at when they think about land-based foods. And I'm not saying, you know, don't eat salmon. It's great for you. And actually quite a bit of salmon, depending on what it is, could be coming from small-scale fishermen. But it's the approach. Just take the same approach. Just know your farmer. Know your fisherman. Eat locally. Yeah, and I'm sure you still will eat bananas that come up from Mexico. So I'm not saying don't if you're in the middle of the country eat fish, but think about it and apply the same principles when looking at the fish counter in the grocery store. Mm -hmm. And because of your work with fisheries, I wonder what your opinion is, and especially after interviewing these different fishermen, what is your opinion on farmed fish versus wild caught, (laughs) line caught versus trolled fish or... Um, oh, boy, yes. So farm-raised fish is still a very difficult industry. There's a lot of inputs, inputs meaning there's a lot of extra needs that you have to purchase, you have to put into raising fish. A lot of fish, depending on the type of fish, is fed wild fish. And so there's still that pressure on wild fish populations to be able to catch the fish, turn it into meal, and feed the farm-raised fish. A lot of times the meal that is being fed to these farm-raised fish are lower on the food chain of fish, like menhaden. And that fish is really, really, really important for the bigger fish in the oceans, you know, going up the food chain. So the raising of marine fish in 
depends, I do not think at this point is sustainable. Mm-hmm. Salmon and, sh- and shrimp and tuna are the three most favored fish species in this country. And the issue with the salmon farms is a lot of what I was talking about, using wild feed to feed them. They are kept in pens, and there is um, concern of diseases being spread, so there are a lot of chemical inputs to prevent that. You are raising Atlantic species of salmon on the West Coast, and there are always issues of escapement, which means the salmon that are being raised on the farm go out and commingle with the wild, which dilutes or impacts the uh, wild fish populations, especially if these Atlantic farm-raised salmon are carrying a disease. Shrimp. Shrimp aquaculture. Really look carefully at shrimp, and shrimp is my biggest issue with raising seafood. And on the very cover of my book, there is this young boy in the mangroves of Ecuador. And so much of the shrimp that is consumed in the United States is farm-raised in Central America, South America, Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. And these mangroves are destroyed in order to have a shrimp farm for three years where the mangroves will feed Entire communities, a shrimp farm requires maybe five people to work there at the most, and all the shrimp is exported to the United States or Europe. Entire communities are being ruined because of our love for farm-raised shrimp. They are putting shrimp farms in cemeteries. They're destroying people's generational homes so that we can have cheap shrimp. Mm-hmm. I also thought it was interesting, your travels down to the Gulf Coast region, Louisiana, for example, mm-hmm. and the stories that the rest of us hear about how BP or British Petroleum has mm-hmm. handled this, you know, coming in with all their <laughs> aid. And then you hear from these lifelong fishermen, fish families, where this is all they know, and mm-hmm. the destruction of their livelihood without fair compensation. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's very, you know, we, the media gets so attached to issues like the BP Horizon oil spill for maybe maybe a month at the most. Yeah. And maybe once in a while it'll come back up. But these people are just reeling, and they are reeling, and they are still not on their feet. One of the individuals that I interviewed down south of New Orleans and Puerto Lajas, Byron Ancalad, who is from that part of Louisiana, and... He's a oyster farmer, and they have just had one issue after the other hitting them, and they finally felt like they were getting back on their feet because they also fell back as a result of Hurricane Katrina, and then the oil still happened. Right. And it's a year after. It's two years after, and people are not able to go back to their livelihoods, whether they're oystermen or if they're, you know, open, if they're fishermen, open ocean or open gulf fishing, and they just haven't been able to go back because of the environmental destruction. And there has been no compensation for these people. There has been no compensation for them not being able to provide for their families. Mm -hmm. And he, this individual specifically, 
is a great activist in his community, and he wanted to go talk to BP, and he wanted to tell BP what was happening down there, and how these these men used to, you know, have a drink after, have a beer after, you know, coming in, working all day, and now they don't know what to do with themselves, and they're drinking all day, and and it's destroying the communities, it's destroying families, and so he went to uh, to BP and wanted to get the right story from them and hear what they're going to do about this disaster. And really, thousands of people's lives they've destroyed, and they wouldn't talk to him. Mm-hmm. If I could pull one line out of all the stories that I read in this book, it would have to come from Bob St. Peter out of mm-hmm. Sedgwick, Maine, where he says, if you are going to colonize or conquer people, you take away their ability to feed themselves, and that has been shown time and again. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about you, but I sense that we are losing the ability to have control over what we eat. And we just have a Mm -hmm. couple of minutes left. So with that theme in mind, I want you to leave our listeners with a message of hope and action. Doing this research was, on the one hand, really heart-wrenching hearing some of the stories. But on the other hand, was amazing what people are prepared to do to protect their right to farm or fish, to protect their right to provide good food to their community. And all of these people are incredibly committed, despite having unknown hardships, whether it be environmental difficulties, whether it be something like a BP oil spill, whether it be (laughs) regulations coming down their driveway and shutting down a raw milk dairy share. And it's just amazing what people are able to do if they organize. You mentioned Bob St. Peter. Bob St. Peter up in Sedgwick, Maine, got together with his community and his fellow farmers, and they essentially drafted the very first local ordinance to implement food sovereignty, which meant that the local community had more say, had more knowledge about what was right for them rather than the U.S. Department of Agriculture or the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And that local food ordinance, after they were able to organize and pass it in Sedgwick, Maine, went around the country. And I'm not quite sure... Right now, how many of those similar ordinances were passed, but it was really amazing what some organizing did and organizing within their own community and then being able to network into the nation and pass this ordinance on to other communities and let them take it, run with it, depending on what works for them. A woman I met, an urban farmer, Terracola, out in uh, Los Angeles, She wanted to grow food in her urban backyard, essentially, and sell it at the farmer's market. She kept coming against more and more hurdles. Nobody knew what the right regulations and ordinances were. Some of them were dated back to like the 1950s, and she would not give up. She talked to her community members, fellow farmers. She went to her city council, and they were able to change the laws around urban farming in Los Angeles. Well, and you Adriana, see this in community. Mm. we're just going to have to let our listeners get a copy of your book to find out the happy ending of that story because it is a <laughs> wonderful one. 
I just want to let our listeners know that we have been speaking with Andriana Natsoulis, and she is the author of Food Voices, Stories from the People Who Feed Us. And as you might imagine, the website is www.foodvoices.org. I want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. I encourage everyone to get a copy of this book and read the compelling stories to help us take our food back, as well as providing resources to find what organizations to join forces with to have a better fed world. Let's just say that. Thank you, Andriana, for this beautiful piece of work. Thank you very much.